Friends, we're still in the middle of Jesus's farewell address to his disciples. This is the night of his betrayal. It begins with their meal and Jesus washing the disciples' feet in chapter 13. Jesus then teaches and walks with his disciples until we find ourselves in the garden in chapter 18 and the betrayal of Jesus Christ. Now, throughout this passage, we've actually read a lot of wonderful and beautiful things. The previous passage that we dealt with over the last couple of weeks, Jesus says things like, if you abide in me, I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit. There is this life that we can live that bears the kind of fruit that glorifies God and gives us the abundant life that Christ offers through his word and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. These are encouraging, powerful, beautiful things. But as Jesus and the disciples continue to walk toward that garden, the disciples are always also on their way to their most difficult night. So Jesus prepares them to suffer because they are associated with him. He's preparing them to suffer because they are associated with him. Now this raises all kinds of questions. For the disciples, it raises all kinds of questions for you and for me, because as followers of Jesus Christ, we're on this walk too. We're, we're in the middle of this teaching as well. We're hearing Jesus speak to us as well. So this raises all kinds of questions. Why? Why will the world hate, and that's the language that Jesus uses, why will the world hate the disciples? All they've done is follow Jesus. They've heard the good news. They want to spread the good news. They want to spread the power of healing in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Why will this happen? Then what will the disciples do when they are persecuted? It happens not long after Jesus ascends into heaven in the book of Acts. Who or what is most valuable to these disciples as the church gets started. We ask these questions about them. We ask these questions about us. What is most valuable to me? What is most valuable to you? What am I worth? What am I, what am I ready to sacrifice for? What am I unwilling to give up in this life no matter what happens? The question for the disciples on this night and for the disciples this morning for us is where is Jesus inside of those questions? Where is Jesus inside of that list of things that I consider to be my priorities in life? So there's some incredibly important things for us to hear in this passage of scripture this morning. Here are some of the thoughts that are gonna help give shape to you and me today about what Jesus says. And the first is this, we've talked about this. The disciples will face persecution if they belong to Jesus. The world around Jesus and the disciples is so full of hate for Jesus that they will work very hard and they will say incredible things in order to get an innocent man executed. Now, Jesus is the only innocent man who's ever walked the face of the planet. So I don't mean he's just innocent of one thing or another thing. He is the innocent, sinless man on earth. And these people are gonna hate him enough to actually get him executed. And Jesus is gonna say, if you look too much like me, if you sound like you are too close to me, then that kind of animosity is gonna move from me to you. 
The disciples will face persecution if they belong to Jesus. And then secondly, and Jesus speaks of this in this section of scripture, the world is guilty of rejecting the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, as we go through this this morning, this passage of scripture and the way that we talk about things, we need to remind ourselves of something that we've clarified a few times in the gospel of John. When we use the word world, when Jesus uses that word in John's gospel, what are we talking about? We're not talking about mountains and trees and stars and butterflies. We're talking about individuals and human systems that are locked in their sin and arrayed against Jesus Christ. So we're speaking in terms of living in sin. We're speaking in terms of the rejection of Christ. We're speaking in terms of the systems of this world that are arrayed against Jesus. Before you and I were saved, we belonged to the world. We were lost in our sin. We were enemies of Christ, as the apostle Paul puts it. That's what we mean by the world. The world is guilty of rejecting the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of believe in him, be forgiven and receive eternal life. This is really good news. And yet the world lost in its sin rejects that good news. In fact, Jesus is going to say that they reject him without cause. What does that mean? Well, I think that's going to be an important part of what we talk about this morning. And then thirdly, friends, we are expected to endure in our trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus is telling his disciples these things on this night because he expects them to make it. He expects them to endure through their dark night. He expects them to come out the other side faithful. He expects them to come out on the other side filled with the Holy Spirit, turned out to the rest of the world to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he expects that of you and me as well. So the world may put pressure on the disciple of Jesus Christ, but Christ is going to tell us the world is wrong. And you and I are still, in all circumstances, ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So let's begin reading this passage of Scripture. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, the Word of God says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, because you are, but because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This is powerful stuff to hear from the voice of Jesus Christ. If the world hates you, I need you to know that that is because they hated me first. Now, this is the big idea of this passage of Scripture. First and foremost, the world as it is lost in its sin, even you and me, before we are redeemed and saved by Jesus Christ, the world hates Jesus and the message that he brings. We're not accustomed to hearing the word hate so often in a sermon. And yet this is the language that Jesus uses. We need to understand what it means and how it works into our lives. 
Now, actually, we were prepared for this. John, the writer of the disciple, as he opens up this gospel, those first 18 verses of John chapter one is considered to be the prologue. He's introducing Jesus. He's introducing the themes of the gospel. So he uses some powerful and provocative language. And part of what John says in John chapter one, verse 11 is this. He, speaking of Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. There are those like the disciples who do, but enough don't to actually get Jesus executed on a cross. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now the immediate and powerful example of that teaching in John, excuse me, in John chapter one is coming for the disciples in just a few hours. Judas, who left the room in John chapter 13 to go to betray Jesus, Judas is coming back with the soldiers and with the temple guards to arrest Jesus Christ. But then eventually, as we read through the rest of the New Testament, as we pay attention to a lot of church history as well, that animosity that they experienced firsthand on this particular night gets turned onto the disciples of Jesus. That animosity gets turned onto the church. Now, this to me raises an important question, and it's an important question for you and for me. What causes a group of people to sign up for a movement that promises difficulty in this world? What causes people to sign up for this? What causes the disciples to stick with this? How does a message of what we call good news, the gospel, attached to a truth like this, spread like wildfire? Something interesting happens in church history. The more the world tries to suppress the church, the more the world presses on the church to keep it down, not only is the church refined, but we discover that the church begins to grow like wildfire. How is it that this happens? I wonder sometimes if inside of the American church that in, in a broad, broadly speaking, if we have probably sold too soft of a gospel, that if you follow Jesus Christ, everything is gonna go okay. If you say the right words, have enough faith, do the right things, give the right money to the right number of people, everything's going to go well for you. And then the moment things start to go badly for you, who do you blame? Begin to blame your faith. You begin to question your gospel. Well, here's Jesus with the disciples. After saying things like, look, if you abide in me, I will always be with you. He then says, now I want you to know this. If you suddenly discover the world doesn't like you because you follow me. You need to remember this night. You need to remember that it hated me first and they hate you because you follow me. What causes these disciples to stick with this? What causes you and me to stick with this gospel message? I think there are a lot of really good answers to that question, but we begin with things like, this is the only gospel that forgives my sin. This is the only gospel that transforms my life. This is the only gospel that is true. It's all true, friends. 
Everything we read about here, this isn't mythology. This isn't made up. This isn't wrong history. It's all true. Why would I choose what is false and then die? I want Jesus Christ. I want this message. Even if it comes with difficulty in this world. And the disciples did make this decision. The New Testament, church history, tells us what happens to a lot of these early disciples. People like John, the writer of the gospel, who's thrown into exile on the island of Patmos. He was separated from everyone that he knew and that he loved because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. John actually, as church history tells us, survives an attempt at martyrdom, survives an attempt at actually killing John the disciple. But here's part of what he tells the church in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. What Jesus tells him, he tells us. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised by it. You look too much like Jesus. As I was reading commentary on this passage of Scripture and reading old sermons, and, and I'm talking people who preached 200, 300, 400 years ago, it was interesting to me the uh, image that they constantly used. Christians smell like Jesus. You get too close to someone else, and what do they smell? They smell Jesus. I mean, that's pretty intimate. The closer they get to you, who do they know? Who do they see? Who do they smell? Don't be surprised, John says, if the world hates you. Peter, the apostle, for as much as he stumbles throughout these gospels in his life with Jesus Christ, and uh, if you did not catch Pastor Brooks's sermon on uh, Peter and his restoration with Jesus, I encourage you to go back and watch it. It's beautiful, powerful stuff. But Peter taught the same thing, and Peter, friends, was martyred. Do you know how Peter was martyred? He was crucified upside down. And here's part of what Peter tells the church in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. If this is happening to you because you carry the name of Jesus Christ, rejoice that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The suffering is not the end, friend. The, ends is, the end is glory with God. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're insulted because of the name of Jesus Christ, you're blessed. Rejoice. Thank God. I love the way the Apostle Peter does it. In the very next verse, he says, but if you suffer because you're an idiot, that's on you. Don't call everything suffering for Jesus and blame it on the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. <clears throat> if you suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, rejoice because you're partaking in his suffering and you're going to see the glory of God. Well, Jesus explains further to the disciples how this works, and he does it in terms of who belongs to what. Verse 19. Now, Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you 
as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's as if Jesus is saying, if you are no different from this sinful world that rejects me, if they look at you and they just see themselves, they will consider you one of their own and you're going to be able to avoid all of the tension. The catch, Jesus says, is that I have called you out of this world into my kingdom. And that just means you're going to stick out. That just means you're going to believe different things. That just means you're going to refuse to celebrate certain things. That just means you're going to be different from the rest of the world. To me, as I went through this this week, this phrase inside of verse 19, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. That is a haunting phrase to me. The question isn't just, who do I say I belong to? The question is, who do they think I belong to? Who does it look like to them that I belong to? Now, this is a pretty straightforward thing to say, but I believe that this is the way Scripture puts it. It's the way Jesus teaches it. It's the way the apostles deal with it in the New Testament. Persecution is proof of our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you've suddenly done something wrong and you need to pray a different prayer. It's actually proof of your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus uses the word persecution, and sure enough, that's exactly what these disciples will face. They're thrown in prison. They're pressed against by the authorities. They're given threats in the book of Acts. Some of them actually begin to die in the book of Acts for the cause of Jesus Christ. So he uses the word persecution. That's exactly what Jesus means. He uses the word, and friends, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world suffer exactly that for the cause of Jesus Christ. What we face in our world, in our culture, is at the very least a growing animosity. There's no longer an even begrudging tolerance for Christians out there in the rest of the world. There's a growing hostility for the message of Jesus Christ. There's a growing hostility about what Christians believe and what the world thinks Christians should believe. So we face a growing hostility, a growing animosity inside of our culture for the message of Jesus Christ. And the more that temperature gets turned up on the gas stove, the more individual Christians and the more some churches and the more some denominations have decided, you know what, the world is right. We need to believe different things. We need to let go of some of these traditional teachings the church has always had. And you know what, as soon as that happens, then the tension begins to decrease because Jesus said it would. Jesus said you could avoid this tension if you just look like one of their own. Get rid of all of this. So the question again for the disciples and for you and for me, who will we choose to look like? Who will we follow? Jesus does not see room for both and. He doesn't. In fact, this passage reminds me of something else said in the New Testament. James, the brother of Jesus, James chapter four, verse four, he tells the church this, 
you adulterous people. Now, remember, he's not talking to you. He's talking to all those other people, right? You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, to be an enemy of God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So Jesus goes on to say, remember the word that I said to you. A servant's not greater than his master. Now, Jesus told them that earlier on in the night after he was explaining to them why he washed their feet. A servant is not greater than a master. I am here washing your feet. I am here to serve you and to give my life for you. Now I want you to turn around and do likewise for the rest of the world and for the body of Jesus Christ. It is your job to serve them because your master has done this. The disciple is going to do this. And then he puts that same teaching into this context. If they hate me and I am your master, you're my disciple. And remember, you're not going to get out from, under, from underneath this if you remain my disciples and now it even includes the tension created by their faithfulness and the responses to their faithfulness he said if they've rejected my word don't be surprised if they reject your word as well if they've accepted my word this is great because guess what they're going to accept your word as well so the church continues to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ however and whenever it can because this is what the church does because there are people out there who are going to respond and listen to the voice of Jesus and be saved. And it is the word of Jesus Christ that we carry into this world. That's the word that people accept or reject. So if a church has decided to become friends with the world, then they are readily accepted by the world and they're not preaching the gospel that Jesus preached. Keep in mind, friends, that the world is perfectly comfortable with a vague and undefined Jesus who loves and accepts everybody. The world is perfectly happy with that Jesus. But the moment you begin to read him, the, more, the moment you begin to listen to him, preach him, live with him, live his life out, that is when the differences begin to show up. And if the world begins to make life hard on the disciples, Jesus says, it is because of Christ. These things they will do to you on account of my name, Jesus says. This needs to stay in the forefront of our minds as we walk through our lives, however long it is that God grants us to do so, that what Jesus is doing is he is making sure we understand that we are in the middle of the spiritual battle. We cannot consider the world our enemy, even if they consider us their enemy. We see things as a spiritual battle. So Jesus explains to his disciples that we are in the middle of the great spiritual battle between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. So this is how we pray. This is how we live. This is how we work, not against the world, but realizing that this is a spiritual battle that the enemy is at work deceiving, stealing, killing. This is exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 10. The enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. In fact, the world, Jesus says, has condemned itself 
by rejecting the coming of their Messiah. So as we continue in this part of the teaching, chapter 15, verse 22, Jesus goes on to say this. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but my father, excuse me, guilty of sin. But now that they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. He said they would have, they would have not been guilty of sin, but because I have come and done these works among them, they are. Now, this is an interesting passage of Scripture. It almost sounds like they are without sin altogether before Jesus shows up. And then because Jesus shows up, now they are guilty of this particular sin. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. Again, inside of the context and the way the church has understood this for 2,000 years is that they are, they are guilty of their rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's the sin that they are guilty of. I've come, I've spoken, I've worked miracles among them, and what they have done is they have rejected me as their Messiah. If I had not done among them the signs that, 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 they, that I did, Jesus goes on to say, this is the other side of exactly the same point. Jesus did many works and miracles among them, and they reject him. And Jesus says, in addition to that, to reject me is to reject the Father who sent me. And that's especially poignant in their context because a lot of their rejection of Jesus Christ is that they want to hang on to the God of the Old Testament and reject Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus says, you can't do that. I am the Son of God. I've been sent by the Father. I've done everything the Father has told me to do. And to reject me is to reject the Father as well. So like they are, we are guilty in our sin when we reject Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We don't always like the language of sin and of guilt, especially in the context of accepting Jesus Christ. Why well, accept something else? I accept pieces of Jesus. Or I reject Jesus but lead a good life anyway. That's not how we get out from underneath our sin. That's not how we fix what is actually wrong with the human condition. It happens with the acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The acceptance of the good news of Jesus Christ and who he is. So Jesus says at the end of this particular passage, and all of this has happened, so that the word that was written in their law might be fulfilled, they hated me without cause. They hated Jesus without cause. That quote happens twice in the book of Psalms. Psalm 39, 35, verse 19, and Psalm 69, verse 4. And in both places, the psalmist is saying, my enemies have multiplied. They've come against me. They have surrounded me. They have hated me without cause. When we tease out the truth of this and what this means and why Jesus puts it here, what happens is we begin to expose our own hearts and minds and our reaction to Jesus Christ. 
when he uses this phrase without cause, it's an interesting turn of phrase. We might think that, well, they don't have any real reason to reject Jesus. They just do it anyway. That's not what it means because the further the gospel goes and you read the other gospel stories as well, the enemies of Jesus Christ express all of their causes for rejecting Jesus. In fact, they, they gin up false testimony and false witnesses to say things like, you know, this Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple in three days. We have to get rid of him. A little bit later on in the gospel, the Jews are going to come before Pilate and say, we have no king but Caesar. We reject this man because he claims to be our king. They have all kinds of causes. What Jesus says is they reject me without good reason. All of their reasons for rejecting Jesus Christ are false. Let that sink in for a second. All of their reasons for rejecting Jesus Christ are bad. Here's what that means. And here's something that helps us, I think, understand who Jesus is. This is the only way the human heart can reject our perfect, loving, forgiving, mercy-filled, holy, and glorious Savior. We reject him for bad reasons. It's the only way we can reject Jesus. Not because we have a legitimate gripe against him, but all of our reasons are false, they're bad, they're broken. The human heart refuses to repent. The human heart believes I'm actually without sin. The human heart believes things like I'm not as bad as that guy. He or she, they need to repent. Let me tell you what they told me last week. I don't have to. These are the kinds of lies the human heart believes. We believe that sin is something that belongs to other people and not to me. We do not want to lose our power over ourselves. We do not want to admit that I am not Lord of my life. I'm not. Or we bow down to the fear that the world and the enemy force upon us and we reject Jesus Christ. The human heart has bad reasons for rejecting Jesus Christ. But friends, so much of the good news that Jesus brings, the disciples have learned to such a degree that they are willing to go through whatever persecution they face to continue to love Jesus Christ and preach the gospel. So much of the good news of Jesus Christ is that we can be freed from our sin and be given a brand new life in Jesus. And you and I right now need to see how much greater the kingdom of God is than the kingdom of this world. When the kingdom of the world grows great and powerful in our eyes, we lose sight of what the kingdom of God is. The fog blows over our understanding and we pick the wrong kingdom. We pick the wrong God. We need to see clearly the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is telling his disciples all of this because he is preparing them to endure. Trials are coming. I'm going to be arrested on this night, guys. Some of you are going to actually witness me be crucified. 
You're going to lock yourselves in a room because you're going to be scared to death that something similar is going to happen to you. You need to be ready for this. And I need you to endure. I need you to remain faithful. So this is why Jesus is telling us this. The disciples are equipped and expected to faithfully endure. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he is equipping you to endure. Whatever it is that you and I face, he's equipping you to go through that faithfully. And quite honestly, my Savior is expecting me to endure. As I thought this through, I was reminded of several very powerful moments in the Old Testament of some of the followers of God, believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as they endured living in cultures that intended to break them, cultures that actually intended to kill them, and yet they remained faithful in the most extreme circumstances. And we read their stories and we learn from them and we want to follow in their footsteps. I'm reminded, first of all, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That story we learn often is little kids and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar has set up this idol to himself and he's told everybody to bow down when the music plays. The music plays and there are these three stubborn Jews in the back who refuse to fall down, who refuse to bow. They're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. He gives them one more shot and this is what they say. Daniel 3, 17 and 18. They're threatened to be thrown into the fiery furnace unless they bow and they say this. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, to me, three of the most powerful words spoken. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You throw me in, my God can save me. If he decides not to, I'm going to worship him as God anyway. And I'm going to go straight into his arms. Their friend Daniel, a little bit later on inside of the book, he learns that this law is signed that no one can pray to any God but the king. And Daniel, who is in the circles of legal power and counsel, he knows that this law is signed. And he knows what he faces if he's seen praying to anybody else. So in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, this is what Daniel does. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he was fully conscious of what was going to happen. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees there three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God like he had always done. He knew the law. He knew what could happen. And sure enough, he's snatched up. He's thrown into this den of lions. They just sleep and sing and pray all night long. <laughs> the king comes the next morning, pulls Daniel out. Daniel, are you alive? Daniel says, yes, God is good. I'm alive. He pulls Daniel out and then throws all of Daniel's enemies. And because the lions had not eaten all night long, they're dead. <laughs> Daniel's enemies, their bones are crushed, the text says. 
Daniel knew what could happen. And he prayed anyway. There's another character in the Old Testament. Her name is Esther. She also lives in a foreign land with a pagan king. And this king has been convinced through all of this backdoor chicanery and drama to set up this this day in which all of the Jews are going to be slaughtered inside of the kingdom. And Esther's uncle comes and says, hey, we've discovered this plot and you're the only one who can find a way through this. Because of the laws of the day, Esther is one of the wives of the king. If she is not called by the king, but she enters the court anyway, the king has the right to kill her there on the floor of the court. She has not been called, but she now has to do something to step up for the cause of the people of God. And this is what Esther says. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do what is right for the people of God, and we're going to pray to God that he makes a way through this. Sure enough. But she knew what could happen. But what does she do? I'm going to do it. And if I die, I die. These are the footsteps that we follow in. These are the people who bear the name of their God and the world hates them. Jesus says, it's because you look too much like me. Who am I going to choose? Whose footsteps are we going to follow in? Without trying to sound overly dramatic or pretending to be a prophet of any sort, friends, I firmly believe that our near future will require disciples of courage and conviction. Christians of convenience will begin to fall by the wayside. If their Christianity is convenience for them, if it's habit for them, it's not a matter of courage and conviction, they're just going to start falling by the wayside. What is happening in our culture right now is, I believe, what is going to continue to happen to some kind of breaking point. The dark and the light are becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. That in-between space is getting more and more difficult to live in. Choices for the follower of Jesus Christ are going to have to be made. If the world sees you as one of its own, don't worry. They're not going to get upset with you. If the world sees you as one of mine, don't be surprised. If you suffer some kind of tension, some kind of complication. And friends, we need... We need in this church, we need in this culture, we need in the Western world, we need Daniels and Esthers. We need modern-day warriors for the faith. This is what we need. I ran across some more information about a pastor who worked in Turkey as a missionary. His name is Pastor Andrew Brunson. Some of you may have run across his name he was a missionary in Turkey, and in 2016, he was actually scooped up by the Turkish authorities, and he was accused of being a spy and had all of these um, accusations of espionage laid upon him, and he spent two years by himself in a Turkish prison before he was finally released. 
And in a recent series of videos he did as he sort of explains what he went through, as he sort of gives these guidelines for how Christians learn to stand through persecution, he talks about how that first year just nearly broke him. He repented so much for the way that he behaved, the way that he reacted, the fear that rolled up inside of his heart during that first year. But then during that year, he began to learn how to change his perspective and to worship God even in solitary confinement. He would talk about how he would sing songs, write songs, how he would repeat scripture, put the truths of God before his face and actually dance while he was in prison. He learned how to get through this. He separated from his wife, from his kids, from the rest of the outside world for lies because he was a follower of Jesus Christ in this nation. And when after a year of being in prison by himself, he's finally brought before the authorities and he's asked to answer for himself, this actually comes from the transcript. This is from the court transcript itself. And here's part of what Pastor Andrew Brunson said. Blessed am I, because for the sake of Jesus, many people have wronged me, have persecuted me, and I am now suffering. Blessed am I, because I have been forcefully separated from my wife and children. Blessed am I, because I am in prison. I choose willingly to suffer for the sake of Jesus, and by suffering for his sake, I hope to display for everyone his incomparable worth. Rejoice, Peter said. If you suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, how can we walk this path? How can we find a way to do these things, to do what Christ expects us to do, to endure in faithfulness, to even rejoice? And there's a lot to talk about there, but some things that actually come out of this teaching. I believe Jesus has been preparing his disciples for exactly this part of the teaching so far. How can we do this? In chapter 15, verse 18, the first verse of our passage, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. Be aware that this is real. This isn't made up. This isn't concocted. I'm not asking anyone to become a, there's a persecutor behind every bush. There's a demon behind every bush. But be aware that this is real. Be aware that the growing animosity and hostility really does exist in some circles. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. We can't pretend it isn't a big deal. This is what in other contexts we would just call situational awareness. We're just aware of what's going on around us and how different it is from the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we recognize it as different, then at the very least now we know what we have to do. Jesus said in chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How can I walk this path? Well, I will not stand in the hour of trial if I am not in Christ. If I haven't been abiding in him, if I haven't spent time in his word, if I haven't cultivated a sense of the presence of God in my own life, abide in me and I will always abide in you. Without me, you're not going to be able to do the things that I've asked you to do. But you do it inside of Jesus Christ.
And then there's this, all the way back in chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus told the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come back and take you to be with me for the rest of eternity. How can I walk this path as a follower of Jesus Christ? The promise of eternity is the ultimate comfort for the disciple. It's the ultimate comfort for the disciple. But if he does not save us from the fire, I'm not going to worship your gods. If you lawyers and police officers find me and discover that I've broken your law and throw me into a den full of hungry lions, I'm going to pray anyway. The king has every right to kill me when I walk in the back door if he hasn't called me. If I die, I die. Eternity promise, the guarantee of eternity for the follower of Jesus Christ is our ultimate comfort. If you belong to Jesus Christ and you die in this life, you will breathe out in this world and you will take your next breath in in the presence of Jesus Christ. The disciple of Jesus Christ is forgiven of their sins, saved from an eternity without God and given the life of Christ. But now we are also living a different life from the rest of the world and calling them to it. But what Christ wants us to do is to stand, to faithfully endure for the sake of Jesus Christ. 